I think a big part of what I think my mission and my role and my work and my life is, is to really break down those barriers. So people never feel uncomfortable to ask those questions um, because I've done all the feeling uncomfortable for them. Hello and welcome to this week's episode of Young at Art, the new arts and culture podcast that puts you in touch with a variety of established names and rising stars from the worlds of art, fashion and interior design who are shaking up the art world and redefining what it means to be a tastemaker today. I'm Harry Stevens, your host, and today we are speaking to art consultant, culture patron and leader in business, Katie Wick-Remsing, who founded her art strategic consultancy company, KTW London, in 2014, which aims to connect and educate businesses, showing them the importance of art and culture. Last year, she launched her latest venture, a culture platform called The Wick, which I can't wait to ask her more about. And she is one of the youngest ever trustees of the Dulwich Picture Gallery, England's oldest public art gallery, which first opened in 1817, over 200 years ago. Katie has spoken on many panels and discussions and is a self-proclaimed business lover and spiritualist. She has a love of people and how they connect and believes that art and culture is the unequivocal point of human connection, which sounds like a really great way to start this week's episode. Welcome to the podcast, Katie. I'm really excited to have you here with me today. Firstly, where are you speaking to us from today? Whereabouts are you? Well, thank you very much for having me. And also congratulations for getting my name right in the first go. I mean, so many people get that wrong, Wick Printing. Um, so I'm speaking to you actually from a new address. I would be living in the same place. Um, I'm a London Londoner, born and bred, but half Sri Lankan. And I have lived for the past sort of 14, 15 years near Wandsworth Common. And I actually moved out to uh, Battersea Power Station. So I'm in, um, in the Nine Arms Estate um, in my apartment, looking over a very sunny river um, and Chelsea Bridge at the moment. So it's a beautiful view from a very high floor at the moment. <laughs> Absolutely beautiful. It is a lovely day in London today, isn't it? I'm also in London and it is just gorgeous. And Katie, you're currently recovering from a leg injury from skiing. So thank you also for being here. And, you know, you're, what, what a trooper you are. Thank you. It's an absolute pleasure. A um, bit of a nightmare. Yeah, I'll be hob- if anyone sees me hobbling around at art events, they'll know. OK, so let's kick off the episode. I really want to ask you about the latest venture in arts and culture, which you've opened last year. Your online platform called The Wick, which was opened and launched in March 2021. It's a cultural content hub which breaks open the art world and highlights the importance of narratives and journeys in art. And it's where you celebrate the face of art today and connect the culturally curious, which sounds intriguing. First of all, Katie, why did you start The Wick? Tell us more about what led you to start this incredible platform. 
I think it was really twofold. So obviously, KTW was a business that um, was well established and has been going for a long period of time. And I think for me, what I realized was that the art world can be such an opaque and closed place and one which is quite difficult to reach and hard to access. And it has such a specific vernacular. And so having worked within the space for a while, I suddenly realized that I was in this, I suppose, very lucky and privileged and humbling place of being in the center of this world where I could actually share that journey and help others to navigate it um, a little better and understand it a little bit more deeply. And in all honesty, it came about as a real natural need because we were finding over time, um, KTW was doing lots of gallery launches and openings, um, working with artists, auction houses, galleries and and brands. Um, And really naturally, this community was sort of forming of people saying, well, what are you doing next and what's um you know what's happening in the art world and can you tell us more so there seemed to be this really natural need and a want from our community which I suppose was born originally from our Monday news platform which was a highlight of female creative cultural game changers and really that came about as a want from me personally to learn about these great women and then it just kind of got a following which took off from there. Amazing and we'll talk more about Monday news in a moment but before we do Katie, just how would you describe the WIC in three words? What what is it? Just describe it briefly for us, for our listeners. So when I look at my business, I see kind of KTW as, I suppose, um, the brain and the wick is the mouth and the heart. I think it's passionate and colourful and hopefully inspirational and educational. And I really want it to feel a welcoming place, but definitely not a place which dumbs down both the arts world or the, or the cultural sector. Um, and I want people to leave it feeling kind of that element of fulfillment and connection, which I know that I am incredibly sort of driven by um, in, in my life and my work. Going to the Monday Muse, it's something I've wanted to highlight for our listeners. Every week, The Wick does the Monday Muse where they select a muse for the week, someone to get you thinking and inspire the way that you work. And it's included creatives and visionaries like Dr. Zoe Whitney, director of the Chisholm Gallery, and Marcel Joseph, the curator and collector, who is an advocate for non-binary artists. Now, Monday Muse features a whole range of people from art, fashion and tech. But Katie, what I'd like to know is who is your eternal muse? Who do you look at to inspire the way that you work? I have a few different ones. Frida Kahlo is one massive one of mine. I think she lived a life which was so colourful, creative, full of human connection. And she really overcame so many obstacles in life, both in her work, both in the kind of political era. She um, was growing up in Mexico, having sustained, I mean, ironically, I was saying that I've got a huge leg brace on currently, Ala Frida Kahlo, I'm channeling her. Um, And obviously also her complex um, human relationships with Diego Rivera, her partner, um, this kind of formation towards Mexican muralist movement. and, And she really, I think left such an imprint um, both on art history and culture as a whole and um, that wider picture really fascinates me and an unusual one is probably Beatrix Potter I am a huge fangirl of um, I mean because obviously writer illustrator scientist conservationist I mean obviously ironically there's the um, B&A exhibition recently for, for her as well um, I think for me again 
she was a female that not only on um, a, a literal level left her mark with her books, but I think there's that piece around impact and legacy. And, you know, I don't know how widely known it is. A lot of her land started to form the National Trust. And she put a huge amount well ahead of her time into conservation and the protection and sustainability of land. And I think she was very forward thinking in that way. And I suppose as a sort of trained historian because I went to Warwick University and studied history I've always been fascinated by the journey that people take as well so I think those two definitely but I follow so many business leaders I mean um, and artists as well so I mean that there's so many I mean I'm working with Jennifer Scott as which I'm sure we'll talk about in Dulwich Picture Gallery who's fantastic and lots of the other business leaders I work with but then on a spiritual level I think Priyanka Chopra is fantastic so yeah many different ones so there's lots of them on the on the Muse platform as well to check out. So I want to ask you more about your career, Katie, because you've achieved so much. And I think it'd be really helpful for our listeners to hear more about how you got to where you are today. As you just mentioned, you studied history at Warwick University and then you went on to Freud's Communications, a global PR firm, where you worked your way up to become an associate director and head of luxury and lifestyle for the agency. After this, you left and set up on your own, obviously KTW London, as we mentioned. And as we talked about a moment ago, you set up the WIC. Why did you leave and set up on your own, Katie? What was it that you just made you think? I need to set up on my own I want to do this myself you know why did you set up on your own and found KTW London I think it was quite a natural course for me um I'd been in a big organization for a long period of time and I actually I didn't I wasn't unhappy in my job and I wasn't uh unfulfilled necessarily in what I was doing I I felt I was in a large teams really dynamic teams some of whom still sort of some of my best friends and I was working with incredibly inspirational people and projects I think what did happen over time is that I really felt that I wanted to be working on projects and with people um, I suppose that were again as we talked about leaving this bigger picture mark on the world and I don't know whether that comes from sort of aging or experience or starting to look at what you work on but I think for me it was about what can I work on that leaves cultural impact in the world and I also as I was working on these very broad projects, whether they be kind of big hotel launches or whether they be things like BAFTA or, um, you know, global news events, I realised that there was this huge world of the visual arts and the cultural sector and this other huge world of global brands and international news. And they just weren't meeting. And I couldn't really understand why, because arts and culture brings in obviously sort of 11 billion nearly to the economy in the UK alone annually. So why would it not be on the agenda? And the reason really was, was because from a high academic uh, kind of entry level or access or connectivity, if your parents aren't wealthy and you can't buy art, you don't naturally get to access um, and be part of that world immediately and definitely less so 10 years ago. And so I think that was part of the mission. And so it was really about taking all of these disciplines um, that had been found in fashion and music and film and the energy and the dynamic marketing principles that you find and putting them into the arena of what we would call the art world or the cultural sector. And I think at that time, I mean, we're speaking in 2022 and a lot of people now are doing this, you know, um, we've seen uh, Peter Doig and Dior and, and Amarako Braffo and many more. Um, but when I started 
that conversation wasn't happening as regularly. Galleries were not being as frequented in a wider way. Arts institutions were not feeling confident about having conversations at a broader business level. Um, and so I'd like to think that KTW in some way, hopefully had a tiny part of playing um, to move that conversation along. One of the reasons that you set up KTW was to connect businesses to the art world, as you've just talked about. So, Katie, why is it important that businesses engage with the arts? You know, what are the benefits for them and for us when businesses have a grasp on the world of arts and culture? Culture is, I see it as a blotting paper and a comment on the world around us as we are lifetime. You know, what is causing provocation? What is causing anger? What is causing joy? And for a business with customers who are out in the world, in everyday world, and they don't need to be passionate about art to understand what's happening around them. It's a unifying tool, effectively. It's like a decoder of language um, of, the, of the wider world. And I think for all businesses, um, particularly some of the ones we've worked with, whether that be Fortnum and Mason and Zangin um, on Lee with um, Hauser and Worth, um, or whether it be Soho House. Um, I think you've actually interviewed Kate Bryan, head of collections, who is um, a great colleague and friend, you know, building a collection that's a museum where the 8,000 piece collection, you know, they're not doing that to accumulate and accumulate high value artwork to put in cupboards. What they're doing is they are displaying this work in places which are meant to be lived in and enjoyed for pure enjoyment and work sake um, to actually sort of look at what we the context in which we're working and living in and seeing things with new perspectives so I think for businesses to be having that conversation with their customer base is very important and also not forgetting the importance of art to an internal organization because that in itself you know we're all working in various work modes some people are remote or not and for for some it's a really really engaging and inspirational tool to be able to um, excite and engage their teams effectively and, and diversify the conversation really really interesting Casey thank you so much for telling us more about that and Given that you've had this incredible career and you've done lots of amazing things, I'd like to ask you for a little bit of advice for anyone listening mm -hmm. who is afraid of taking that step into the unknown. What do you think is the best piece of advice from someone else, or it could even be that you found from within that has really helped you to take this next step and, and push yourself in the world of business and arts? I think the key thing is don't be afraid of screwing up. <laughs> we all do it. I still do it all the time. And I think failure is really important. I'm also a really big believer in fate. And I don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing. I, I'll, I'll tell you in my, uh, in my next life. Um, but I'm a really big believer of the Steve Jobs quote, which is the docs only connect looking backwards. And I think everything in our life, even things that we at the time question and maybe think, well, why did that happen in that, in that way? Or it felt like a negative experience. When you look back on it, there's always a reason that you didn't get an opportunity you wanted. Or if you meet someone that always takes it onto a path or a conversation into something else. Um, I mean, even you and I are an example. You sort of took the forward motion to come and speak to me after a talk moment at Soho House Group. And we're now having this conversation now. And who knows, many more conversations I'm sure we will have. And I think all of my best work and best creations and conversations have come from an element of serendipity. I think the other thing is 
not to rush it, you know, we're living at the moment in an era where there's kind of almost a bit of an over celebration and in some ways glorification of entrepreneurialism. And being an entrepreneur, I still find it hard to say that word because I find it slightly cringy, but being an entrepreneur is hard and there is a lot of responsibility that comes with that. There's a lot of isolation that comes with it, a lot of responsibility, a lot of considerations around money, technology, other people um, and in the creative industries particularly which is full of other people and we're always working with other people you know I have a team of consultants and a permanent employed team as well as all my clients you know when you're dealing with people they're unknown entities so my biggest tip to anyone is if you can learn to manage yourself and your own energy and bring the right energy to the table then I don't believe you can ever really fail and I don't think I've ever had a situation where I go in with the right energy and the right intention that has not had the right result for me personally really really great thank you so much katie and no worries just moving kind of on a bit more now into the art world today and your love of art i really want to discuss with you this um and i've read that you had to teach yourself a lot about the history of art before you set up ktw london and i think this is really interesting because i'm sure many listeners will assume that you've had this formal art training and you haven't had to kind of teach yourself Firstly, why did you have to teach yourself so much about the art world when you set up on your own? What was the kind of practical reasons that meant you had to do that? I think partly because in the business that I have, both on the KTW side and the WIC side, um, I've always believed that wisdom, integrity and knowledge are sort of key drivers above and beyond anything external that's glossy and exciting that we all see and sometimes probably is the Instagram vision of what we create. Um, And for me, I think when you have a knowledge of anything, it gives you a confidence. And having that confidence gives you, particularly in my industry, a confidence and an assertion in client handling, because your clients are really looking to you for a point of view. Um, I still, by the way, am learning a lot about art history. I still absorb, like blotting paper, everything in the art world. If I see an artist that I'm not aware of, I will read up more about. I still will read books around how the art world works. I'm pretty au fait now with the ecosystem of the art world but in terms of art history and how it plays out I obviously was very privileged that my degree even though it was pure history um, I went to live in Venice for my final year Um, Kate actually Kate Bryan did the same thing we were in the same year Um, and so we were really lucky to do that so I got to go to a lot of the art history lectures and of course absorb 15th century art history um, as part of that as well but I think it's important to have that knowledge so that you can do your job confidently and I'd always advise people to choose something that they love because you're going to have to really immerse yourself into it and the other thing is also to be really honest about what you don't know so I will often say to clients when I start calls if it's um, let's say an arts institution who I regularly work with or an art gallery I'm definitely an expert in the business of art am I an art history expert no am I an art world expert yes and I think it's really important to be clear on where your expertise lies ironically now people would say I'm an expert in all those areas but um but I think you always have more to learn really really good you definitely do and I think you know everyone everyone listening you know there's just never enough stuff to look at in art you'll always find stuff that you have to look at and also you know the experts I've been with people who run major blue chip galleries and I take them to a show and show them an artist who I love who I'm very familiar with and they may never have heard of them so I think there is a slight 
um, sort of euphemism within the art world that everyone's sort of looking with their hand on their chin, kind of concentrating on paintings and knowing everything. And I think some of the biggest collectors and some of the most prestigious people that I know in the art world are the ones who ask questions. In fact, a major a major collector sort of got in touch with me and said, oh, you know, you did an amazing artist. You covered them on your spotlight. Tell me more about them. Or I wasn't familiar with the artist that you're representing in a gallery show that you're working on at the moment. And I always think that's so refreshing when someone who has been in the industry and is known as an expert for 50 years or more is asking questions. I'm sure this will inspire lots of our listeners to just be confident to ask questions and think, you know, if I don't know something, I'm going to find out. And Katie, where did you kind of start when you wanted to learn about art? Do you kind of remember where you first thought, how am I going to do this? How am I actually going to start trying to learn about art? Because it's such a huge topic for someone who isn't trying. And there'll be lots of people listening who are trying to get more into art. Where did you begin? Do you remember? So I suppose at Freud's, we, I had lots of projects which were art related. So at the time I worked on the launch of Pace Gallery as part of the Royal Academy. And I worked on the launch of Saatchi Gallery and also with Baku in Azerbaijan on their cultural programs and the Heydaliyev Center. So that in itself was a great sort of springboard, I suppose, in singular projects um, and things like the fourth plinth working with the Grey Mayor of London's office. But in terms of what sort of spurred me to learn about kind of the art market specifically, um, I actually started by working with some YBA artists, so people like Rachel Howard, Matt Collishaw, the Chapman brothers, and I was very, very fortunate to work with them and also Francesco Clemente and the like, um, actually for a gallery that doesn't exist anymore called Blaine Southern. And at that time, the gallerist, Harry Blaine, who I worked with, I was really fortunate that I would put in time with him. Um, he actually was very kind and wanted some luxury brand expertise. And I, in return, said, well, could I ask you lots of questions about the art world? And over time, I realised that there was a very delicate sort of map at play with lots of different people and lots of different relationships. And I just sort of took it upon myself. I had also been through a lot of changes at the time. I had been in a long relationship. I had planned a wedding, which I then didn't do in the end. Um, but for that reason, I think when your life changes very quickly in many different ways, it sort of pushes you to recontextualize yourself and where you are going. And for me, I think art provided a little bit of that mapping and direction because I think artists are incredibly astute at being able to map their own internal emotional system. And I think if someone said to me, I'm going to say shock horror. What's your biggest passion um, beyond art? My biggest passion is psychology. And I think for me, that was the twinning into all of my passions together. Um, and then I also took, you know, a really brutal view of it, which was I would buy the papers every weekend and read the art sections. I was going to libraries and borrowing books and genuinely sort of having an understanding of it. I think a lot of people don't realise, and again, if you're new to the art world, there's some really classic things that the everyday person may not be aware of, like a private view is public. I mean, how ridiculous is that? Crazy. So you should just go on to the big gallery websites and the small gallery websites, anything that takes your interest and log in 
in and you will get an invitation to their private view. And I remember the first big gallery opening. I mean, this is many, many moons ago now. And I actually emailed the gallery director to RSVP for the private view. And he said, oh, my God, I love that you did that. And I said, yeah, but, you know, that's a normal thing to do. It says private. And then the public institutions will have previews that are actually private. So I think a big part of what I think my mission and my role and my work and my life is, is to really break down those barriers so people never feel uncomfortable to ask those questions um because i've done all the feeling uncomfortable for them <laughs> i love it and i'm really glad you mentioned your interest in psychology is that where you think you've got your love of art from you know that that really wanting to understand people and the way that they connect and the way that they work so my parents are actually from a medical background, but my mum is very passionate about art. So when we were little, we would actually have a mother, mother and daughter days, and we still do, where she would take me to an art gallery and we'd go for lunch and go shopping. And it was always one of these things that became like a real highlight in my calendar. And she used to spend time, even from a very young age, um, I remember being sort of five or six, where you know she would sit down with a big art book, like study Matisse and sort of look at cutouts and and do that in a very easy to reach childlike play element so that was definitely part of it um, and I think I'd always had artistic influence through my own passion areas so I always found that galleries were a place for me to feel like in as a Londoner I found them quite peaceful I suppose living in, and growing up in London, I was exposed to quite a lot of arts and cultures that naturally led me on to that and in terms of psychology, so psychology, I think, probably has come about because my father is Sri Lankan and Buddhist and my mum obviously came from British Christian background. And again, I think being from a mixed heritage, you just sort of are very, very open to many different influences, which are incredibly contrasting. And so I've grown up in a kind of mad, loud, mixed Asian, British, European style family with many different characters. And I've always been fascinated in the way those things fit together. And I think artists, as you say, they really take a conversation and translate it into the visual. And colour is a very, uh, a very important thing to me. I think to surround ourselves with colour and energy is really important. So you will very rarely see me in black. If you do see me in black, please ask me what's wrong with me. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's really great. As you mentioned earlier, Katie, the art world can seem on the outside quite an exclusive place and you've made it your personal mission to open it up to more and more people through the WIC and KTW. And I'd love to know more about the art that you collect personally. I know that you have your own art collection, which you jokingly refer to as the WIC's Fondazione, which is just the right sense of humour, I think, to deal with art. Tell us more about the art that's in your home. What is hanging on your walls that you can think of that you just think, oh, that is just my favourite pieces? So I have, I'm actually surrounded, look, I've got all of these oh, um, artworks. Um, I'm taking, I'm taking Harry, sorry, listeners, on a visual journey of my, <laughs> of my flat. But I have um, a, a lot of artwork around my flat and a lot in storage. There's three works which I just showed um, to Harry, which I look at all day long. And they're very important personally to me because they were actually hanging in the first ever office of the gallery that I was using a space in. And the artist is called Marius Bircher. So he's a Romanian contemporary artist. He was born and raised in Cluj. And he basically looks at different ideologies um, of kind of architectural forms and how we kind of relocate our lives. And he covers off these kind of massive human journeys in quite kind of, I would say, 
really bold bursts of colour, which I absolutely love. Um, he's kind of part of that, I suppose, paintbrush factory look and feel. And so those three works really, to me, have an emotional connection because I literally was with me in a laptop on my first few days of being in a gallery. And I think I see them as kind of my old friends in a way. And then I have Johnny Yeo. I'm a major fan of Johnny Yeo. Um, and he, I love because he was my first painting I ever bought. You know, people always talk about art collecting um, and it is, it's expensive passion in many <laughs> ways. Uh, definitely one which can get you into trouble. We can do another podcast on that, finance and art collecting. <laughs> So Johnny, I went to his studio and I'd known Johnny for a long period of time because in chapter one of my life at Freud's, he was curating art collections and working with a Soho House collection as well as being an artist. And I was in his uh, studio having a meeting and saw this incredible pawn leaf painting. Um, and I just became obsessed with this painting. I said, I really, really want this painting, Johnny. How much is it? And obviously the price was way too much for me to afford. So I just said, well, uh, do you think I could pay it off like a couple of hundred quid a month? And he just looked at me and kind of went, um, okay. And then I ended up basically paying off this painting over a long period of time. Um, and it's now, I would say, my favourite painting. I suppose that's another one that talks about this idea of, you know, breaking down those barriers as well and feeling um, not uncomfortable to ask things. I've got Laura Gannon, who I'm a huge fan of. She uses a lot of materiality in her work and she has a work called Closed Cabinet, which I actually bought from an auction. And that's from a series influenced by Eileen Gray, who's a furniture designer. And that I bought because I'm a huge fan of fashion as well. Um, so the name in itself, it's very evocative of 1920s in style. It's kind of gold material, sort of shredded. Um, and it reminded me of The Great Gatsby, which is one of my favorite books. Um, and something I studied at A-level. And I loved that painting because it reminds me of work I did for um, the Museums of Israel, where I bid for that work. I'm a massive fan of Chris Levine, who I have worked on and off with for over nearly, well, I suppose about eight years. So I have Kate Moss looking over me um, in her meditative state whilst I work. And I think his work, I love because it, has very many different forms but I love the way that his lenticulars almost capture this layered work so when you move around them they look like they have a movement um, and I find his portraiture is incredibly peaceful he usually will capture people in a moment of stillness I'm sure you'll be familiar with his iconic queen which no doubt we'll see a lot of over the jubilee um, and then I also collect a lot of younger artists so I have currently with me here I've got um, Amy Beager who's fantastic fantastic at capturing kind of evocative romance Caroline Wong she was actually part of a recent prize I've had a mind blocker I think it's the Ing not the Ingram discerning eye prize and she was a shortlist there with judges like Russell and Rob uh, from Tourcart um, Roland and Jane collect friends of mine and then Shaq White who I have been championing for a long time um, he's at the Slade there's so many I mean I could go on for hours in this way but I won't <laughs> bore you and Joshua 
Raz behind me. I was a judge for the Mark Hicks Art Prize and Josh um, was one of the finalists who, who I love. And also Zoe Buckman. I don't know if you're familiar with her work, but um, she talks a lot about the, the female journey, the female gaze and, um, and very sort of personal, quite dark experience that, that she has personally had and spoken to other women about. And she contextualizes them in these quite kind of delicate fabric work. So I like things that really speak to me and, and my work that I collect is really diverse. There's a lot of emerging artists and established. Um, and again, I'm, I think it's really important to be open. Like I, I too often I, I've met people at events and they say, what should I invest in? And I say, don't even think about that. Just look at like, what do you love and what do you connect with? One of the works I'm sitting here now with, which is worth sort of, you know, definitely, I would say, you know, well over 50,000 mark, whereas the one behind me is 200 pounds. I say that, by the way, it's worth that now. Harry's eyes are widening. I didn't spend 50,000 pounds. I would love to, Harry. I would be doing very well if I was spending 50 grand on artwork. Really, really interesting. Thank you, Katie, for giving us an incredible rundown of, of all the work that surrounds you and some of your favourite artists. So moving on from your own art collection and into public art, last year you became the youngest ever trustee of the Dulwich Picture Gallery. As I mentioned right in the beginning of the episode, the world's first purpose-built art gallery founded just over 200 years ago in 1817. Obviously, 200 years ago, art wasn't viewed publicly in the same way that it is today. And it currently, Dulwich Picture Gallery houses a collection of outstanding old master paintings and drawings, as well as modern works by artists, including a recent exhibition on the work Helen Frankenthaler. So Katie, tell us, what is the job of a trustee for a gallery? What does the role entail? I don't have a clue what this, what this job is. So just tell us a little bit about your role at the Dulwich Picture Gallery as a trustee. So I was made a trustee over lockdown. Firstly, I was completely humbled because generally trustees have piles and piles of experience. Um, but I think what I have loved about it is the director, Jennifer Scott and chair Evelyn Welsh, pulled together a really kind of diverse group of trustees. But generally a trustee, they take a kind of formal role of responsibility. So legally they have a responsibility um, in, I suppose, acting as a formal steward of the organisation organization so taking actually formal decision making around how loans are being done any issues facing the organization the cash flow of the organization ensuring that we are um, I suppose helping not necessarily to just lead that conversation but to provoke conversation and to help be sounding boards when the day-to-day -day operational working teams and advisors need um, assistance whether that's in a specific area we obviously all have I suppose various and very different expertise um, so I would obviously work often more on conversations around um, you know patronage, marketing, fundraising. I've also been recently looking at the diversity and inclusion side of things. Obviously, a big challenge for public galleries was, you know, over lockdown, they lost a huge amount of visitor figures. And how do you, you know, in a post-COVID world, what is the role of a public gallery and how can we start to develop that? And how do we diversify and build new audiences? And how do we keep things relevant? And these are conversations not just at Dulwich Picture Gallery but I think for every gallery is is really important it's also a real privilege to be part of things like the Tessa Jowl Health Centre in Dulwich Village so they had kind of an open call opportunity and commission for young artists to I suppose 
create an entry to be considered for that work and so to actually kind of spend time to listen to artists putting forward proposals that become a piece of formal public art which is ironically where I get went to get my booster jab so I sat in the waiting room and looked at this art of which I'd sort of seen in presentation form and that is a really touching um, important thing and I think also being a trustee of a gallery that is so close to my sort of home I was born in so I actually grew up just around the corner from Dulwich Picture Gallery so even kind of at nursery school I would go to Dulwich Picture Gallery um, with my parents or on school trips as I got older um, I've been to friends weddings there so it's really part being part of kind of the fabric quite literally of my life and still continues to be so yeah I love working with the team there and they're absolutely fantastic in what they're doing and they have a new exhibition coming up so reframed women in the window so everyone should keep a lookout for that. Thank you so much, Katie. And for any links for anything that Katie has mentioned today, they will be all in the show notes for any of our listeners to have a look at. Katie, what can we learn from historic art when looking at modern art today? Obviously, you know, the Dulwich Picture Gallery has this incredible historic and modern collection. So what can we learn from historic art when we look at modern art today? Why is it important to understand both sides of art, the old and the new? Mainly because as we talked about earlier, um, this idea of art being a context and a conversation to the world around us. So not only from a kind of anthropological perspective, but from a historical perspective and a visual perspective, you know, looking at how conversations evolve. We went to um, a talk the other day, which Evelyn Welsh actually gave at the Dulwich Picture Gallery. And there was this conversation about how Rubens, when he was you know, doing these big fleshy bodies, was actually looking at some of the, I suppose, conversations that exist in East meets West medicines around the doshas and this idea of it wasn't quite a literal, um, it wasn't a literal painting of the nude, it was actually um, looking at other factors you know at times you would paint people um, in a bigger form of themselves to represent wealth or prosperity and so really as a conveyance of value systems if you imagine you're an alien landing on earth and looking at uh, a Botticelli and then a Rothko and then looking at um, performance art for example I think it's really important to look at how those conversations are changing because they ultimately one informs the other and so I think the more public art we can have the better because it just serves to deepen that conversation but in terms of the historical interplay I think the historical piece of art is definitely around that human behavior of how we lived as society as well and also how that value has continued and conveyed and transferred over time best art collectors or not best or worst there's no such thing but you know some of the most prolific art collectors um, value that journey through the history of art because of that narrative and how it's informed art movements Really, really interesting to get your take on this. Katie, you're also on the board of a public art walk between the Olympic Park and the O2 called The Line. And my question for you with that in mind is, why is it important that people get to see art in their everyday lives, especially public art? Why is that so important to us? It's vital because not everyone has a chance to see art in their work. Um, I'm really privileged in that my job is also my passion, but not everyone is in that place. 
I think the hidden gems of the UK is Yorkshire Sculpture Park. Um, you know, being able to go, you know, and as you mentioned, the line, um, being able to wander along London and see, you know, sculptures, whether it be kind of a bridge from Madgill or Abigail Fallis's metallic structures or a Gary Hume or a Gormley. Um, I think London is a real champion and one of the leading ones, actually, in terms of quality of public art. And I think public art is a free way to see art. It's an everyday way for children and families to access it. I think in a way as well, which important, it doesn't, art shouldn't have to be that you're concentrating for an hour at a time and learning and listening to an audio, an audio book. Um, it can be that you are just running to get a coffee and that moment is going to provoke a new way of looking at something or it will change a thought in your head. And I think for me, that's why I think public art's important. Obviously, if you look at what happened with Black Lives Matter that had such an impact on on public art and sculpture Um, and one of my best friends actually is a sculptor called Nick Hornby who is I think one of the most talented individuals Um, and also actually he does amazing drawings and architectural drawings which I have in my collection as well but Nick's an example who I love talking to about public art because the nature of public art has changed because obviously at times and sculpturally would have been a reward system or an ownership system or a charting out of, of our land as we see it whereas now we have public art that is seen like the fourth plinth which is obviously um, commissioned through kind of the public realm mayor of London's office where we're giving new artists an opportunity to have new dialogues so again even that conversation has shifted and I think the shift towards the importance of public art has really I think had a welcomed highlight on it for sure I think it's the balancing the democratization of it the openness of it um, which is why I think it's valuable agree more I think it's really important that people see art in their everyday lives and like you said it can spark a and something in you which won't get out if you don't see art in everyday lives I couldn't agree more Katie. Well you look at um you look at the line um actually on their website I think is they've got like a runner running through London and past a Gary Hume and and also just I love this kind of discombobulating context of like a sculpture and then something completely random the other day Gavin Turk had an egg in um in, in central London and there's someone like standing there next to it eating a McDonald's and I think that's great I think it's these completely contrasting um cultures coming together into into one thing and it's even better in a way if someone's not almost overly manipulating that conversation as a as a as a viewer and they're just kind of suddenly uh, faced with something because I think that gives a much more natural reaction I totally agree. I couldn't agree more, Katie. I just want to draw this episode to a close. We're getting towards the end. I want to reflect on the events of the last two years. Obviously, we've had the global pandemic and the recent war in Ukraine, which is still going on as we speak. And I want to talk to you, Katie, about the power of art in crisis. You know, these events have intersected our lives over the last two years. And art, for me, has been both great escapism and a tool to process what's going on and my question to you Katie is why is it important that we still create art in these uncertain and challenging times? I think art is a binding force both collectively as a society Um, I think on a independent and a singular level emotionally it enables us to connect with ourselves 
There's been lots of studies around our health and the hospital rooms and organisations like the World Health Organisation that have looked on the statistical impact of our and qualitative and quantitative and how that's changed. And it's been proven that to go to galleries to see art physically has a proven effect on our cognitive skills, our way in which we empathise, the way in which we then have conversations with other people. Um, and I think why is it important in terms of what's happening now? You know, you only have to look at... I've actually just bought one of Idris Khan's um, prints for Ukraine and I also bought another from the Lochran Gallery um, of a new artist Um, and I think those types of art are important because they are they're like a mini piece of activism to be able to make a positive action with art. And, you know, we only had to see it during lockdown and COVID that, you know, children in every single school um, were painting and drawing rainbows and Banksy was sort of gifting works um, into the space. And in a way, art was the only conversation that didn't halt at that moment of paralysis. Um, And, you know, even the fact we're seeing um, an artist who I've done lots of work with, JR, who I have huge admiration for, um, going into conflict zones and creating, um, you know, moments of joy and inspiration. And we're actually working as a team on the mo- at the moment with a photographer and artist called Alyssa Everett on her show covering beauty. And she kind of covers the anti-conflict debate. And again, she's traveled in like 130 countries over the last two decades. And ones which have these very specific narratives of famine, warfare and political upheaval. But she is finding these moments of joy and beauty and humanity. And I think it's really that umbrella and that litmus test and so I think it is the all valuable I think as you said at the beginning and I always say this it is the unequivocal point of connection um, for for everyone and everything. Couldn't agree more Katie and my final question for you of the whole podcast and I've asked a few people this. No pressure. Uh, Pressure I've I've asked a few um, people this on the podcast I think it's a good one to finish on. Okay my question is why does art matter to you Katie? I think art is important to me it enables us to connect with ourselves and others around us and going back to the psychology um, question that we talked about earlier I think a tool for life that enables things to be more fluid and connected um, is is only a good thing and I think art is that way forward and I think it's also it's going to be the medium and the um, the discipline that enables us in a, in a world or time in the world where things are really complicated not just geographically and environmentally and politically and with the governmental system and with the health system I think it is something that is going to break down all of those barriers as a huge equalizer um, for humanity so I think as um, as a binder for humanity that's where I see art's role and that's why I think it's so vital. Thank you so much for speaking to me today Katie and being with me. If any of our listeners would like to find more information about Katie please follow her on Instagram at Miss Katie Wick and you can find The Wick on Instagram at The Wick Culture. Thank you again for being with me today Katie. It was so it's been so lovely to speak to you and I've had a really really enjoyable last hour of my day. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you so much for listening to this week's episode of Young at Art. If you want to find out more about the podcast and see who will be joining us for next week's episode, please follow the podcast on Instagram at Young at Art Podcast, where you will get updates and inspiration to keep you going until the next episode. 
A huge thank you for this week's guests for joining me. And if you want to know more about them and what they do, please look at the show notes of this episode for more information and links. And if you liked what you heard today, please don't forget to subscribe to the podcast and press the notification button so that you will be notified when a new episode goes live. A huge thank you to Beatrice Ross, who drew our cover art, and to Maggie Talabart for writing and performing the intro music. 